think of the worst thing you've ever done. And now stop, don't actually go there because that's a terrible way to begin a message. Think of something small that was bad that you've done. Okay, we'll go there. Think of some time you messed up. Small thing. Now imagine if you were only known for that one thing. Now imagine you were only known for that one thing and that became your reputation and people 2,000 years from now knew you as that person for that thing you did. (laughs) Now today we're talking about a person who has an unfair reputation of something that happened about 2,000 years ago. And the thing is, he didn't even really mess up. Not really. And yet, he gets such a bad rep. This man was the disciple that after Judas, many would kind of say he has the worst reputation, right? We're talking about Thomas. Doubting Thomas. What a terrible name to call someone. Doubting Thomas. I mean, think of it. Think of the other disciples who have unique or special associations with them. You have James and John, the, the, the sons of thunder, right? Oh, man. You have, you have then Peter, who, like America's, you know, gentleman, was known as the rock. You smell what the rock is cooking. And then you have doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Tough break. Well, we are going to look at that faithful moment of Thomas's life to try and make some sense of what is going on and to even see if that bad rep is justified. Spoiler, it's not because he's our unsung hero of the day. Not because he is unsung, but because he's not often remembered as a hero, even though he was. Some context before we dive into the text. Uh, Jesus died on the cross. The disciples are heartbroken. They're his closest people on this earth, and they are confused, they are grieving, they are hurt. Now, this account we're about to read takes place eight days after Jesus' resurrection. That's a long time to sit in your grief after Jesus' death. Jesus has since appeared to Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John, And then later he reveals himself to the other disciples, all the other disciples except for Thomas. They were behind locked doors. Thomas wasn't present. Jesus revealed himself. And this account of which we will read, it's only found in the Gospel of John. Thomas, of course, is mentioned in all the Gospels as one of Jesus' disciples, but this one is unique to John. So we're going to dive in to John chapter 20 verses 24 through 31. You're invited to turn there with me. You're invited to look on the screen. Hear now the true word of the Lord. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see those nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. 
And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Imagine the emotions in that moment. My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. And blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the true word of the Lord. We give thanks to God. So this is the encounter that has earned Thomas his reputation. But first question for us to consider, was Thomas the only one who doubted? You don't have to go very far to realize he was not. No, in fact, every single gospel talks about the doubts of the other disciples. Take Luke's account, for instance. In Luke 24, it is written that when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to Eleven and all the others. That is, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. And what does it say? They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Well, there you go. Thing is, these people knew these women. They were in relationship with these women. They had, they had been part of the greater flock that had been following Jesus. And, and notice the little note there of Mary, the mother of James. James, a son of thunder. James, one of the disciples saying, Hey, mom, your words are nonsense. I don't believe you. Oh, bad move, James said it's nonsense. Each gospel has the disciples doubting Jesus at some point in the journey. There were some even at the great commission of the greater disciples where it says they doubted. The great commission came after this account. This was before Jesus ascended. He gave the great commission and they were doubtful. So why is Thomas called out? Well, I mentioned before that Jesus had appeared to the rest of the disciples behind locked doors. He appeared to them when Thomas wasn't there. I think this is a very important thing for us to know. Jesus was Jesus. He can, could have done whatever he wanted. He knew the whole schedule of all the disciples at all time. And the disciples were fearful and afraid of the Roman uh, uh, authorities. So they were behind locked doors praying, trying to figure out what to do a lot. In fact, it was probably rare that all the disciples were gathered without Thomas, more so than all the disciples being there together. And yet Jesus chose to enter in and reveal himself while Thomas wasn't present. And I think this is a key moment in our exploration of doubt today. To me, this reveals that Jesus had a purpose in mind to letting Thomas have his doubts. Our doubts can have purpose. Our doubts can have a God-given purpose. Is it wrong to doubt? 
It's so easy on the surface, and we probably all have put our foots in our mouths when we've done this before. We say, oh, don't doubt, just believe. And that sounds so great, right? That sounds awesome. But then you go and you live life, and you realize life is really hard. It's really hard. And in this really hard life, we wrestle with highly complex and difficult questions. And as we navigate that, you know, I could give you a whole list of examples, but you're a human navigating this complex life, meaning you already have that list in your mind of those difficult questions to which you're not sure the answer, where you may even have some doubts because we navigate a broken world and we ourselves are sinful and broken by nature. So to say, don't just, don't doubt, just, just believe. The fact is, none of us want to doubt. Anyone here like, I just, I hope for a whole bowl full of doubt today. No, none of us want that. I have doubts about some things. And I also have faith. And I also believe. And that's true for Thomas as well. Do you think Thomas wanted to doubt? Do you think he saw his disciples overjoyed with the knowledge that Christ is risen and said, I don't want that? No, he wanted that more than anything. He just wasn't there yet. He wanted to believe. What this text is showing us is that doubt in and of itself is not, it's not wrong. It's natural. It's part of the human, human experience. Our lives are filled with faith and with doubt. I would even venture to say that doubt is natural and can even be a healthy part of the process of faith. And some of us have moments when we doubt a little, and then most of us have those times when we've doubted a lot. But doubt can be a part of our pathway toward understanding, toward belief. In fact, I think I would likely be more concerned for someone if they never questioned what they believed if they never wondered about different aspects of their faith, if they never actually wrestled and grappled with doubt, I'd have more concern than if they voiced that they have doubts. Now, Jesus here has a specific encounter with Thomas. John writes it down for us, and it gives us a tangible example of how God meets us in our doubt. He's not removed from the doubt. He is in the doubt. Like the whole Bible, this story, it's not so much about Thomas as it is about Jesus. And did you see Jesus' response to Thomas? He was not hard on Thomas for his doubts. No. I used to interpret that last little line as him like giving this little knock to Thomas, like, hey, yeah, you've seen me, so you believe. What about those people who haven't seen me, though, huh? Kudos to them, because they believe. That's not what he's saying. We'll, we'll deal with that in a minute. That's not what he's saying. Jesus was graceful in meeting Thomas and his doubts. Thomas's doubts had a purpose. He longed to know the truth. He longed for Jesus to be alive. Jesus Christ, who he lived life with as close as you possibly could for three years, of course he longed for him to be alive. But for Thomas to open himself up to the possibility of him being alive is to open himself up to the possibility of being hurt again. He just dealt with the death of Christ. He wanted to believe, but he had to be certain 
it was true because the pain was too great. His heart just broke. It can't break again. But what does Jesus do? He provides Thomas with what he needed in that space to believe. He provides us with what we need enough to believe. Thomas did not let his doubts turn him away. He didn't abandon everything because of his doubts. He's still there with the disciples. He's still present amongst them. He didn't run away. He didn't say, forget all of this. He didn't go and be isolated. He stayed around, and he's present when Jesus shows up again. He was still loyal to the believers, the disciples, and to Jesus himself. You see, in our doubts, community matters a lot. In isolation, our doubts just flourish. But in community, Thomas had a place that would accept him, that would walk with him in his doubt, that could show him, hey, I know you don't believe now, but we believe and we long for you to believe too. They would pray for him. He could ask questions. He was surrounded by these folks that allowed him the space to work out his belief. That's what the church looks like. Do you know what the church would look like if it was filled with people who had no doubts? (laughs) It'd be empty. And then, when his doubts, Thomas's, came face to face with the answer he was longing to receive, he didn't question. No, he gladly believed and he cast aside that doubt. For Thomas, doubting was simply his way of responding in the midst of his grief from the cross. Doubt was not his way of life. We have zero, zero uh, uh, textual evidence that this was a regular pattern for Thomas. You know, we we get reoccurring uh, uh, patterns of Peter in his brashness right? He's going to jump out the boat first. He's going to run to the tomb first. He's going to say, I'm, I uh, wash my whole body, not just my feet. Wash all of me. That's Peter's brashness, which we later can celebrate God transforms into his boldness, as we see in Acts. What would it look like if we got more of Thomas's story? Because this is what we get from Thomas. But can you imagine the power of his testimony on the other side of his doubt? Oh, man. You see, voicing our doubts, that is healthy and good work. Burying our doubts, keeping them to ourselves, pushing them down further and further, that's not healthy at all. See, doubt can be good, absolutely. Doubt can lead us to asking questions, even hard questions. And when we wrestle with questions and we seek answers, we often will find some answers. Maybe not all, but some answers. And when we're willing to accept those answers and those doubts have proven to be healthy fuel that move us from a place of disbelief to belief. And with an increase in belief comes an increase in faith. And faith is what fills the gaps of our understanding. But doubt, if we keep it to ourselves, if we bury it, it turns sour. It can turn rancid. If we allow it to lead us toward stubbornness, then our stubbornness, it it, it fuels a a pride-filled lifestyle. 
And when we're in that place, then we're never navigating any of our doubts, but we're just choosing to, to, to be hardened. And we're doubling down on our doubts. And what does that do? It stalls our faith. It harms our faith. It could even become our faith. So a question for us all to ponder this morning. Are our doubts fueling us toward belief? Is it making us do the wrestling hard work of grappling with our doubts, longing to believe as Thomas did? Or have they soured us? and led us into a place that is stubborn, unwilling to believe in any way. Because doubt can deepen or harm our faith. It is up to us which path to take, to press in and do the hard work, to surround ourselves with God-loving community, to ask the questions, or to wade in the doubt, to stay in the doubt, to bury the doubt, for that doubt to sour and to frustrate and to harden, to close us off because we have no answers. We know answers in this world do not come without work. There is, in fact, no faith without some level of doubt. That's why it's faith. We choose to believe even when we don't have all the answers. We choose to believe even when we have questions. The encouragement is to, to take our doubt and let it push us forward toward belief, to bring our doubts to a very capable Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and trust them to him. Because only in his presence will we receive any answer worth its salt. Only in his presence will we receive permission to release what we ultimately will never know. Another interesting item from this account. Jesus, in his return, maintains his wounds. What does this show us? Just like Thomas's doubt had a purpose, Jesus's suffering had purpose. And his, his, his suffering post-resurrection maintained a purpose. It tells a story. See, Jesus did not erase proof of his suffering or of his humanity. No, no, a lot of us, we, we, we will hold on to doubts because we're, we've experienced some hurt and pain in our lives and we're afraid of getting hurt again. It feels, it feels scary like Thomas to, to leap from doubt to belief. But here Jesus, in his humanness, in his woundedness, he used his scars to tell his story, to bring Thomas from doubt to belief. What wounds have you buried that you haven't told anyone about? that you long to forget, that if you shared them with others, it might be the thing to bring them closer to belief. See, your wounds may provide the answer to someone else's doubt. Your scars are your story. They're your testimony because you're on the other side of those pains now. You're on the other side of those hurts. You can speak to what God has done in and through your lives. Thomas's story here gives hope to all who doubt. He was so obstinate. He was so certain of Jesus's death that he could not believe the words of his closest friends. And he would be satisfied by nothing less than material evidence. 
the fact that he does indeed believe on the other side of his answer. It gives us, one, a proof that Jesus indeed is risen, because even Thomas believed. (laughs) Even Thomas believed. Our scars are our story. Don't bury them. Share them. Share them in God-loving community where there is trust. You will be blessed and you will bless others. Imagine the power of Thomas's testimony on the other side of his belief. Jesus' comment, even after Thomas's belief, I, I mentioned that before, it's not a knock to him at all. He says, you believe by seeing me, but blessed are those who do not see and believe. Those words are not a knock against him. Those words are for you and me. We were not first-generation Christians getting to walk in the dust of the Savior. And yet we can believe by the power of his word and our testimonies. We can believe. He is talking about us. He is naming to us that doubts will come. But if we believe, we are blessed because we've done the hard and good work of using our doubt to a benefit to propel us toward belief. Thomas had identified the very thing standing between him and belief, and he wrestled with it. He couldn't get over it. But it's not about Thomas who doubted. It's about a Jesus who cares and who loves and who is graceful enough to meet Thomas in that space and provide him with what he needs to believe. And that same God is our same God, and he will do the same for you in your doubt. The story is ultimately about Jesus who cares, who cares so deeply for Thomas, for his followers, for you and me to meet us in our doubt and our questions and to help move us toward belief. And Thomas is a hero, not because he doubted, but because he did the hard, gritty work to wrestle with his doubts. And when Jesus entered the picture and stood before him, he didn't hesitate to leap to believe. My Lord and my God is as strong of a testimony as you can give. Yes, he is fully God. Yes, this Jesus Christ is risen. Yes, he is the Messiah. He is the one the Old Testament prophets spoke of. He is the Savior of the world and the answer to all our doubts. He is the one that Thomas walked with, talked with, and grew to love as a friend, a teacher, a Savior, and a Lord. And he is the same Jesus that sat with him around this table. That is the same Jesus that in the face of, his, of our doubt, his grace is sufficient. In the face of all struggles of his, the world, his love overcomes. This table proves the depth of Jesus' love. So when you doubt, remember this feast. Remember the Savior that he saw you your struggle, your sin, your doubt, and he went to the cross so that you might be saved and you might believe. This is the love of Christ that is present for you. He sat at this table with his disciples, knowing their gifts, knowing their sins, knowing the betrayers, the accusers, the deniers, the doubters. And he said, come and feast at my table of love 
and grace and everlasting covenant because it's not about you, it's all about me and my love for you. That shows the depth of his love. Because as he gathered with his disciples and he thought of them and the burdens they carried and he thought of you and the burdens and the doubts you carried, he said, child, (laughs) after giving thanks, he broke the bread. He said, take this, eat this, remember me. Don't just remember what I've done. Remember who I am. Don't just remember who I am but remember why I've done all of this. I break my body because I love you and I long to be with you forever. And with those disciples, after they ate, when he took the cup and he poured it out and he offered it to them and he offers it to us, he said, take this and drink and remember me. This cup This is me fully poured out for you. I have given my all. And all I ask from you is some. Take, drink. My grace is sufficient for you. This will quench your thirst. For I am the living water. And I have done this so that you may live. This is what we celebrate at this table. This is why we come, not because we are perfect. We are far from perfect. We come because he's perfect. And he saw us and he says, I will make space for you at my table. Your only requirement? Call on me as Lord and Savior. Are you truly sorry for your sins? Then come and feast at this table. Will you pray with me? Almighty, everlasting God, we thank you for this feast of grace. We thank you for your unending love. We thank you. It's not about us. It's not about our shortcomings. It's not about our doubts. It's all about you. That you saw us in our brokenness, in our sin, and you said, I'll make a way. God, we offer to you right now all our hurts, all our brokenness, all the ways we've messed up. And as we do that, God, we bask in the promise of this table that you don't gaze at us with disappointment in our eyes, but with grace in your eyes, with understanding from the God who mourns with those who mourn, who weep with those who weep, who rejoices with those who rejoice because you know us better than we know ourselves. You know what each of us need here at this table today, God. We offer ourselves to you, and though it be a small sacrifice compared to your complete sacrifice, we pray and believe that it is enough, because you've made it enough. We thank you, Lord. We praise your name. In Jesus' name. Amen.